Hey, Rockheads. If you haven't already checked out Music to Code By, you really should, especially if you need to focus on anything, like programming. But it's great for kids doing homework, great for reading, great for writing, anything that you need to focus on. The results speak for themselves. I've got hundreds of satisfied customers. Go check out their comments and more at mtcb.pwop.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1153, with guests Jason Taylor and Michael Patterson. Recorded Friday, May 29th, 2015. Well, thanks very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Here we are again, buddy. Yeah. It's summertime has come to the Pacific Northwest. It's always great when the sun comes out. Absolutely. It's hard to be inside. Yeah. Uh, you guys have had sun now for quite a while, whereas yeah. we, uh, this is a novelty to us <laughs> in the Northeast. Snow melted yet? Oh, yeah. It's all melted, but- Are you sure? It's only June. Yeah, it just is beginning to feel like spring here. Ah, that's good. Anyway, uh, we have a great show for you today. Jason Taylor and Michael Patterson are here um, talking about some really cool tools and implementation that um, we think everybody's going to be interested in. But before we do that, I've got a rerun for Better Know Framework. Awesome. It's so important that I think we ought to hear it twice. Do it again. All right, buddy, what is it? It's Kind of Magic. Ah, right. Okay. That's actually the name of the tool, Kind of Magic. Kindofmagic.codeplex.com. And what this is, is it's an MS build task that simplifies, and that's an understatement, simplifies the implementation of iNotify property change interfaces. WinRT, Silverlight, like you care about that, but if you do, Silverlight.net 2.0 plus Windows Phone 7 and portable class libraries. So... Everything that's new in Windows 10, it's going to work just fine. Basically, you know, what you have to do to implement iNotify property change is kind of a pain. You have to do a little bit of plumbing code. All you need to do is put an attribute that says magic over a class that implements iNotify property change. Everything else is done. And if you want, <laughs> if you want field level control, you just, you don't do that. And then you just put magic as an attribute over those properties that you want to implement oh, iNotify man. property change. Magic. That's some kind of magic right there. I love it. It's hilarious. And uh, it was just, you know, we did it before on Better Know Framework, and still I meet people who don't know about it, and it has saved them countless hours of work. So I thought I would just give it some more love. Nice. Kindofmagic.codeplex.com. Know it, learn it, love it. All right, buddy. Cool one. So who's talking to us, buddy? Grabbed a comment off a of show 996. That's the one we did with Doc Norton when we were talking about Agile Metrics. Oh, I love that show. Yeah, measuring productivity and so forth, which is a hard thing to do. And uh, this is a hefty comment, but I think it's worth it because John Norton says, this is over a year ago. Yeah. As you were talking at the beginning of the show about how software engineering isn't so much engineering because we don't have the rigor and quality standards that real engineers do, something occurred to me that I don't think I'd ever heard mentioned before. First, I want to point out that such a thing as a professional engineer who is licensed and governed, the vast majority of working engineers do not get to put PE next to their names. So that the professional engineer is actually a rating and this is the guy who's certified and insured and all that sort of thing. And most engineers... Don't do it. It's expensive and difficult. 
What I really want to say, though, is maybe our reduced level of rigor isn't so much our fault as we sometimes like to think. I'm sure that it sounds like denial, so let me get straight to how I got there. In more classical engineering disciplines, you don't prototype in the same medium that your finished product is made in. For electrical engineers, the prototype is on a breadboard or small-run circuit boards. Mechanical engineers might do a scaled-down prototype, use different materials or machine parts by hand. In most cases, the prototyping will have been preceded by computer modeling and or paper design. The result of this is that they have something to show. There are probably wires hanging all over the place and rough edges everywhere. This makes it obvious to everybody, most importantly their bosses, that there's still plenty of work to be done. In contrast, when we build software products, as soon as we have something to show, it seems done. Maybe there's still polish needed on the user interface, but the expectation is that the hard parts are done because you showed them to me. Even if we show them the code, it's much harder for a non-developer to identify poor code than it is for a non-engineer to identify a breadboard or sharp edges. I think in the packaged software days, there was a better appreciation for the effort it takes to get from it works to it's ready to ship. The stakes are higher when you're putting something in a box or asking your users to run an installer. But even there, the ability to do automatic updates mitigate the risk like never before. In the web-based world where you can deploy 10 times a day, the priority of the business is naturally going to trend towards if it looks done, it is done. This doesn't absolve us as developers for caring about quality and not being reckless, but it does mean we generally can't justify the level of rigor required of most other engineering disciplines. It just doesn't make sense for the business. I blame the sales guys. <laughs> and I'm serious. I've never met a sales guy that waited until we had software that was sanctioned by development to show it to a customer. And it invariably fails. You're usually lucky if he's even selling something that your company does. That was the voice of Jason Taylor there. We'll introduce him in a second. But I agree with you, Jason. You know, rule number one is never let your salesman sell dreams. Yeah. Right? Only, uh, we did this a strange loop. We did not talk outside of the dev team about the features we were working on. Yep. Until they were ready. Because they would always sell the feature that hadn't shipped yet. Because it's an easier sale. Sure. Right? Like, in the end, it's a bigger promise. It's a bigger dream. So, of course, it's an easier sale. Selling what you have is harder. There's no no two ways about it. Mm. And I think it, there's nothing wrong with what John said here. The advantage of software is its ability to be continuously updated. And we're getting better and better and better at that. Like, that's its strength. Imagine if we could, you know, with a click of a button, just reinforce the bridge with better concrete. Mm-hmm. You know, we would because it's awesome. Yeah. But uh, we don't have that option, only in software. So, uh, John, lots of long paragraphs, but you're not going to get any argument from us. Thank you so much for your comment, and a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com. So let me introduce our guests today. The First of all, uh, Jason Taylor, whom you heard there a minute ago, has worked in a number of high-growth business units centered around delivering software as a service and is passionate about building scalable cloud platforms. The experiences gained in those shops directly led him to Stackify, and those experiences helped shape the product. Jason has led many development teams through his career and is intently focused on delivering a great product while helping developers grow, learn, and realize their full potential. In his free time, Jason is a lover of motorcycles, cars, great beer, and his family. And order counts, right? <laughs> See, I'm, order- I'm, I'm, I'm lucky that my family won't be listening to this, so it's a get-out-of-jail-free. Awesome. Michael Patterson is Principal Software Engineer for Carbonite, 
who spent the last year architecting and implementing their Azure solution, consisting of websites, cloud services, table and blob storage, Redis, and Stackify. How you doing, guys? Doing great this Wonderful. morning. So, um, first of all, you can't help but have heard of Carbonite because you guys advertise on just about every NPR show that I listen to. I, I have heard about Carbonite for years and years and years, and it, it's a pretty cool product from what I understand. And I haven't bitten the bullet yet because I'm pretty good about backups and, you know, I'm technically savvy and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but that's the whole idea of Carbonite is that you just plug it in and magically in the background, all your files get backed up in the cloud where you can uh, download them if you need to, right? Yeah, so uh, we definitely are everywhere these days. Um, and our initial market really was aimed at non-technical people who didn't really understand how to do any backups. And we've really made um, a pretty astonishing transition over into uh, small to medium businesses, um, you know, so that they can help all of their uh, employees who don't really know anything about backup, um, mm -hmm. you know, feel a little bit safer if, you know, somebody takes uh, a vacation or a business trip, you know, you arrive and your laptop doesn't. Uh, we kind of help to fuel business continuity and, and those types of things. So it's uh, been a lot of fun uh, engineering a lot of um, uh, a lot of the processes that enable that. And I, I can imagine you guys deal with a lot of data. I don't know anybody who doesn't have less than a terabyte of hard drive these days. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm pretty sure we're in the hundreds of petabytes of uh, data backed up now. Yeah, so that's uh, quite a problem to put up there. Um, Jason, so tell us, first of all, tell us about Stackify, and then we'll see how these two things came together. Okay, so at Stackify, we're, we're a fairly young company. We're about three years old, and um, kind of our, our founding fathers here, uh, we all came out of businesses where we were just fighting fires all the time, and we were using an assortment of tools to you know, determine where we had performance bottlenecks and to monitor our applications and infrastructure, and um, we kind of realized there's a problem. There's like too many tools that we have to buy here, and they're too expensive, and then we have to glue them all together and make them work, so right. that kind of that led to the birth of Stackify, and we aim to um, really help developers answer three questions about their applications. Is their application down? Is it slow? Or is there just some sort of weird behavior? Um, so we've brought together, you know, a combination of some server monitoring, application monitoring, um, uh, code profiling, and error and log management all into one platform. It's easy to get started with. So you can see all these different pieces that are usually a part of troubleshooting or proactive monitoring and really just kind of simplify the whole thing. So in theory, you know, similar to what Carbonite's done with backup, you know, they've, they've taken a lot of the, you know, complicated technical parts out of it and just had a, you know, simple, easy to, easy to get started, easy to use solution. That's all um, done in a SaaS model. Right. Okay. And so tell us how these things came together. Yeah, so um, last year at Stackify, we started really kind of hitting the, the conference circuit, you know, getting, getting some floor space and um, uh, getting developers more aware of Stackify. And 
last year at Dev Intersections in Las Vegas, uh, I had a group of, of developers from Carbonite come up and they looked at what we were doing and they kind of had this hallelujah moment. They said, we've been looking for something exactly like this. And, um, you know, within an hour we had them set up and running and they had pretty much fallen in love with us. I can't really blame them. We're easy to fall in <laughs> love with. And, uh, you know, I think I can let Michael probably pick up the thread on the other side of that, of, of you know, what they were looking for in Stackfine and why we were a good fit for them. Because you do a, a suite of tools, right? Not just right. one or two things. Uh, you have a whole suite. And, and I guess, Michael, you were using individual tools from individual companies that did pieces and parts. And, well, tell us about what your challenges were. Yeah, so it's actually uh, really interesting because uh, what led to Stackify is ultimately what led to us finding Stackify in that, you know, we were using, you know, a bunch of different uh, log solutions, you know, trying to find a centralized location for uh, logging and exception management and, you know, server monitoring, whether in the data center or in the cloud. And um, shout out to um, Michelle LaRue Bustamante. Uh, Jason, she's actually uh, the one who told us to come talk to you. Hmm. And so uh, this, I actually wasn't able to attend uh, that dev intersections, but when the rest of my team got back, they were, you know, just kind of raving about Stackify. And I was kind of leading the charge from the implementation standpoint on my team. So I, uh, you know, got a hold of it and I didn't really do anything other than install the agent and the log for net appender. And it just blew my mind within like five minutes, all of the metrics that I was seeing, the streaming logs, you know, the ability to see in near real time what's happening inside of my applications. It just like floored me. I could not believe what I was seeing and how much better it was than, you know, all of the uh, uh, poking around with all the tooling that we were trying to use before. So it was just awesome from the very get go. Okay. So let's talk about some of the challenges that, um, you guys have in particular, I mean, good tooling is good tooling, but your, your challenges, I mean, you have a lot of high volume, right? A lot of data to, to deal with, a lot of data coming in and a lot of data going out, probably more coming in. What does that look like? And what are, what's different about you guys than, than most companies, you think? Well, so uh, first off, my team, uh, we're kind of in charge of the cash register. So if our systems are not working, uh, then, you know, Carbonite's not really making any money. So it's really important that at any given moment, we understand uh, the health of our application stack, you know, from the browser all the way down to, you know, a number of different databases and everything in between. Um, so, you know, our real challenge is, uh, or was at the time that, uh, you know, we're trying to expand to different regions throughout, uh, you know, throughout the globe, uh, first application in Azure, and really trying to understand some of the differences in not only how to uh, identify issues, but how to fix them, you know, how to uh, write for or code for the cloud versus uh, within the data center. And, um, you know, the real challenge once we actually implemented Sacrify was actually digging through the enormous amount of uh, data that we had and trying to figure out, you know, what's good, what's bad, you know, where do we need to add some additional information, where can we get rid of some additional information, and actually get to the core of, you know, what's actually important. So we know if somebody tries to buy or renew or upgrade or whatever, uh, that it's going to work flawlessly. All right. So um, let's let's go back to Stackify for a minute. What are the, what are the suite of tools that, that come with it? First of all, we should say for the record, I know this, you know, without making it sound like an infomercial, there is a free tool 
Stackify is, is free if you use it in Azure, right? Right. Yeah, we we've got a uh, uh, offering in the Azure Marketplace that is a a uh, uh, completely free version. Uh, there's a couple limits around you know how many different devices you can install on that mm-hmm. sort of thing, but it's if free to perpetually use. Okay. Um. Absolutely. Because you know what we want to do at the end of the day is is this is this is starting to become a prevalent space uh, of doing application performance monitoring and there's a few different options out there uh, you know we think that it should be application performance monitoring should be kind of a first class citizen for any development team um, these are these are tools people need especially as developers take on more and more of the operational support of their applications they aren't they're no longer you know, coding and then throwing it over the wall to an operations team and saying, here, it's your baby now. Uh, when there's problems in production, developers are responsible for that. They need all of this data to really know how their applications are performing, why they aren't performing well. And, uh, you know, at StackFi, we think that, that it should be accessible to everybody. It shouldn't cost you more to monitor your applications than it does to run them. Okay, so let, let's talk about the different pieces of StackFi. Yeah. 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 So we've got uh, three main components right now, which is your uh, server monitoring. So it's, you know, the basic server monitoring that a lot of people are used to, um, you know, knowing that the server's on, running CPU, memory, running processes. Um, And we actually do some proxied access as well so that you don't have to give your development team full console access. You know, you can get to some local file system and that sort of thing without having to get on to all of your servers. Um, After that, we've got our application performance monitoring. So we do a couple of things there. There's a lot of, what I want to say, a lot of .NET developers don't necessarily know what they should be instrumenting and watching in the performance of their .NET apps, especially yeah, .NET, right? They come to us and say, okay, well, I've got all these performance counters and all this WMI available. What should I be looking at? What's important to my app and, and throughput and latency? So out of the box, when our agent's installed, we do a lot of automatic discovery. You don't have to do a lot of setup and configuration. We query IIS, we find your apps, we catalog them, we add in all the appropriate performance counters. So you can look at, you know, how much CPU and memory that particular application pool is taking compared to overall server CPU and memory. We add in all the important performance counters for, you know, requests per second and queued requests and all of that good stuff. Mm. And the other thing that we're, we've just launched, it's in public beta today, it's going general availability in about a week, is uh, code profiling, so method-level code profiling. Uh, you know, we, what we look for there is basic throughput in your IIS pipeline. Mm-hmm. So how long is it taking to complete a request? And then what are some of the major things that are happening in there? So from if you're talking about an MVC application, you know how long it's taking to execute the controller and compile the view. Uh, and then we and then we look for anywhere that your app is crossing a service boundary. So you're making an HTTP web request to another URL, or you're connecting to a database, performing database queries, talking to cache. Um, any anything that can cause a real bottleneck in your application. And speaking of bottlenecks, how do you prevent Stackify from causing bottlenecks in your application? <laughs> and that that's a good question. Um, so the way that we implement that, similar to 
some of the other vendors in this space is through some CLR profiling. And so the .NET CLR has a profiling API that's available. And if you, uh, if you write to that, you can, you know, basically at runtime inspect code that's running and get, you know, build a shadow stack and, you know, inspect object values. That's how we, you know, see what SQL is being executed, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. um, so, a lot of developers have at one point in their career, they've used a tool like ANTS to find a memory leak or a CPU problem. And you get, you know, this tremendous dump of, of your application at runtime. Yeah. And it also makes your application run really slow. And that's if you're profiling everything, every single method call in the framework. What we've done is, is just a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of everything that we could profile to make sure that we capture just enough information to get a clear picture of what's happening, but without having a performance impact. And we've put that through tons and tons of load testing, lots of different scenarios. It, it adds some overhead, but it's pretty minimal. It's a couple milliseconds per request and, you know, just a tiny bit of CPU and memory, you know, one to 2% increase. And Carbonite, they've actually been, uh, one of our biggest beta clients for this, and Michael can probably talk to it some as far as what they've gotten out of it and the value versus that little little bit of a performance trade-off, which I don't know if they've even noticed. All right. Well, that answers the question anyway. Do you guys use background uh, threading or background you know, asynchronous processes that uh, are low-priority kind of things to get out of the way? Yeah, absolutely. When you're actually profiling the .NET code, I mean, that's happening in process. You know, you're, you're yeah. capturing those method enter and leaves as they're happening. Um, but what we do is our, our theory is to get in and out as fast as possible. Yep. You know, we, we dump it to a log file, and then our Stackify agent is actually running in a different process, different memory space, and it's picking that all up and queuing it up to us. Now, are you talking about the APM product that's still in beta? Yes, and so is that available for an Azure website as well? Oh, you had to ask me that one. Ah. <laughs> um, so it actually is going to be very soon. I've been working with a couple of the senior engineers on the um, Azure websites and app services team uh, because, you know, that's a sandboxed environment. You can't yeah. install additional software into it. Well, that's why I asked. <laughs> yeah, we still have the ability to do it. We're just having to write a uh, purpose-built agent for that. And one of the things that I'm really excited about is the performance question that, that Carl just asked is the profiling and instrumentation tools that are out there today for Azure websites are actually running in process. Um, ours is being developed in a way that it will actually be running same as what we have for our full Windows, Windows server is it will be running in a background process. Got it. And this reminds me of preemptive analytics, which is in the box of Visual Studio, right? Mm -hmm. Right. That same sort of IL interleaving trick. Yep. And they take that low priority background thread approach as well. That's why I asked it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that's an important question um, because, you know, we feel like this is something that developers should have on all the time. They shouldn't be worried about, you know, a performance hit to it because of the value that you're going to get out of having it on all the time. We talk to people who are using using tools now that they do have performance issues when they run it. So they're only turning it on when they have a problem or they had a problem and then they have to reproduce it. We'd rather have you using it all the time when the problem occurs, you're going to know about it immediately and you're going to have all the data you need immediately. 
So you also have a sort of global exception aggregation. How does that work and how painful is that to set up? Yeah, exception and log aggregation. Um, So same thing there. Um, It's pretty low performance overhead. Um, We've actually, so we built our our library and uh, REST service to handle all that data coming in. And then we you can write to our API directly, or we realize a lot of developers already are using error and log handling in some way. So mm-hmm. we built appenders for all the major frameworks, log for net, Elma, okay. nlog. Um, we even have, we've got full support for Java, PHP, Ruby, um, and you know we've used the major frameworks there as well. And Michael, that was what you were using, log for net, right? Yep, we were using uh, Log4Net, and I got to say, between uh, a bunch of our different applications, you know, it was filling up our inboxes or, you know, taking up massive amounts of disk space, and we just couldn't really get any real value out of it other than seeing that, you know, we had a bunch of log files or emails somewhere. So the having uh, the aggregation uh, really made it easy for us to kind of prioritize uh, what was most important, what we needed to pick off first. And in fact, um, that combined with the streaming logs, every time we do a deployment now, uh, you know, I'll kind of sit back and watch uh, the application, see how it's uh, behaving for, you know, 30 or 45 minutes after uh, deployment. And, you know, it just makes me feel so much more comfortable anytime we make a production change. I got it. So the um, error aggregation actually gives you some uh, real insight by thinning out all that data. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, for an example, it'll tell me that over the last four hours, I've seen this exception, say, 37 times. Yeah. And, and you can see, uh, you know, what log statements happen before or after that. Uh, and depending on, you know, what uh, additional data you pass in, you can really get um, very, very granular into what was happening for a particular person or uh, a particular uh, request and any um, child request that happened after that. And it just has made troubleshooting much, much easier without the hassle of having to, you know, parse through log files or, you know, try to count the number of error emails in my inbox. Michael, when you first turned that thing on, did you get a bunch of errors you did just didn't know were happening in production? Uh, so we actually we saw a couple that we didn't know, um, but it really surfaced uh, the sheer numbers, uh, the number of times specific exceptions were occurring. Right. That was really one of the big pieces uh, that we really couldn't see without you know playing around with a bunch of different uh, different tools around. The logging, um, we just didn't really know if, you know, this guy was always getting this exception versus, you know, this guy wasn't. Uh, it, you know, made it much, much easier to figure out that, you know, this customer, he's got some data that's in a bad state and that's, you know, 45% of the errors right there. And then, you know, whatever it is. So, um, and you could specifically go into the logs and see which, uh, what, what are the errors around those exceptions? I mean, what you were doing at that time. So, I think that's yep. that's probably the most important thing in a tool like this is one thing to gather data. It's another not to have to plod through a bunch of it to actually find answers. Yeah, it turned the data into information. On the performance side, do you do things as, like that as well, uh, Jason? So oh if like, there's a slowdown in performance, I can tell pretty easily without a whole lot of fanfare what was causing it. Yeah, I, th- I mean, there's there's a lot of capability to do correlation there. And that's something that we're you know always looking for easier and faster ways to like bubble up, you know, an event that happened, right? And and then all the relevant 
contextual data that you need for that. And um, yeah, absolutely. By having you know your your performance monitoring and all of your login exception stuff in one place, it's really easy to you know zoom into a time range, see the performance issues you're having, then see the exceptions that were happening, and then um, w- with logging, uh, being able to see who was impacted by that or who was the cause of it. Um, that that is really powerful. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is now? Uh, must be that happy time again. Yeah, well, it's time to call AT&T to dispute this $20,000 wireless bill. <laughs> oh. Were oh, you in Canada again? Maybe I shouldn't have kept carbonite on while I was tethering in Canada there last week. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, Telerik DevCraft is the most complete... .NET toolbox for web, mobile, and desktop development. With the addition of UI for Xamarin to the DevCraft bundle, you can create compelling native mobile experiences with your C-sharp skills. Download a free trial at tinyurl.com slash devcrafttrial. Awesome, dude. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Fuji Sakito. Hi, congratulations, Fuji. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for you, sir. I saw the t-shirt on you the saw, sweaters. I was just going to mention the t-shirt. <laughs> Some fan created a t-shirt that says golf clap for you, sir, and... Uh, and uh, showed it on Twitter. Uh, we got to give him some uh, cred. We'll give him. We'll, we'll give him a proper shout out next show. We got to make the shirt. Is what we got to do. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, Fuji Sakito just won the Telerik DevCraft collection, a big pile of awesome from Telerik. And uh, for more information, you can go to .netrocks.com. Click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you got to sign up to win. We also like to ask our guests, Jason and Michael, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would it be? What would you buy? What would you get, Jason? Jason. Well, I, I I don't know. Have have they announced pricing on the Hololens yet? They have not. <laughs> you know that would be on the top of my list, no matter how much it costs. And uh, that'd I don't be, think it's going to be that expensive. Cool oh well, right. It's going to be you know probably the hot ticket item for Christmas next year, right? So yeah, can't probably. cost more than the Xbox. The story I've heard is that they're not focusing it on consumer at all. That it's going to be a business product. It's a training and and you know data analytics device. But, uh, we'll see. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see what happens with it if the consumers just run with it anyway. Yeah. I mean, once upon a time, a BlackBerry was purely a business play, and but it would you know we make fun of them now, but in the '90s, that was CrackBerry. It was everywhere. Well, you know, a prosumer video camera costs twelve, thirteen hundred dollars. So right. You know, and and if you're going to use an Oculus Rift, you're going to need a computer that's a grand or something right there you know it's so it's you know you're gonna spend money for it yeah well plus plus how many kids out there you know are gonna want that for minecraft or or something like that i mean the minecraft plus hololens just seems like the perfect marriage yeah well you go from a free piece of software on your pc for your kid to the thousand plus dollar (laughs) thing he wears on his head yeah yeah i hope you like your kids with halo Uh, I need yeah, that's, that's a seizure inducing. You know, one of the things they're finding with the with the um, the Oculus Rift is that the experience is so immersive they have to dial back the games. 
you know, the games are sort of overdriven now because they're trying to overcome the limitations of the visuals and the audio and so forth. But I've, I've had an Oculus Rift on and been standing on the edge of a cliff and it gives you the hoogly booglies. Like you, <laughs> you feel like you're going to fall off that cliff. Oh yeah. It, it's a little too. too immersive. I don't think I would play that game. It, it'll do ya. Like you. You'll, it's distressing. Well, Michael, how about you? Yeah, so HoloLens is definitely up there for me. Um, I'm also really looking forward to uh, Surface Pro 4. And I don't know if I have any money left over. Um, I don't know, maybe some high-tech golf clubs that would make my slice a little bit less bad. Oh, nice. How, how high-tech are golf clubs these days? You know, I don't know. Uh, I'm really hoping that someone will dig into that because my slice is nearing 90 degrees. Oh. Uh Golf clubs are crazy. Like, yeah. The stuff that's going on in them now is, is madness. And, and, and <laughs> there's, there's limits, right? Like some of the things they're talking about with these golf clubs are the, uh, the LPGA comes back and goes, uh, yeah, you, you can't use that on a course. That's, that's too good. So yeah, it's really, you can spend as much money as you want on golf clubs. I guess you're right. Yeah, easy. Five grand, not even hard. All right. Well, the hollow lens still comes first for me. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine the hollow lens combined with golf. Like being able to look out on the course and oh. showing you distances, telling, oh, suggesting wow. a, a hit angle and so forth, you know, knowing that you had keeping your eye down your head where it's supposed to be and your posture correct and actually feeding the data to you the whole time. Except for one problem, Richard. What's that? It doesn't work outside. Well, you know. Don't. <laughs> details. Oh, well, it would be nice. I don't know. Have, have you talked to a salesperson about it yet? Yeah. It, it works everywhere. It's salesperson. It works everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're selling the dream. There you go. <laughs> All right. I want to dive into this and I want to come at it from the angle of a guy with an Azure website up and running today and without instrumentation. Because I have a bunch of choices, right? I mean, the, the Azure product has its own instrumentation, the application insights stuff. Mm -hmm. Why would I want the free Stackify product? Like, What does that do? Well... You know, <laughs> that, that, that's a good question. You know, we feel that we actually do some things nicer than a product, say, like Application Insights. App Insights works really well if you're kind of using this trifecta of you're, you're using Azure, which if we're talking about Azure websites, obviously you are, um, but also using TFS Online, which not everybody's going yeah. to use, and, um, and then App Insights. We think we present the data that we find in a little bit better way. We also have um, some, I, I believe, easier and faster configuration and setup. Plus, we want to work across um, your entire enterprise. We talked to so many people today who are running a hybrid of, you know, .NET and some Java stuff and Node.js, and they've got a legacy PHP application. And then, um, you know, .NET developers even are picking up things like Elasticsearch. We actually mm -hmm. use a lot of Elasticsearch ourselves. Um, when we were at Dev Intersections last week, somebody came up and said, do you guys know anything about monitoring Elasticsearch? And I said, well, yeah, ab absolutely we do because we have full support for Nginx. So if you have Nginx standing in front of Elasticsearch, we can monitor the heck out of that. And uh, for, for those sort of customers who kind of have a mixed bag of technology, we work really well. It's still one common tool set that's going to work across all this stuff beautifully. Um, and, you know, just to to plug a little bit more, I hate hate sounding like I'm plugging, but uh, I think our pricing model is really simple and easy to understand. You pay 
X dollars per month per server. And with App Insights, they they advertise or they just released their their pricing at build, I believe it was, or yeah. right around build this year. And their pricing is based on numbers of number of millions of metrics your app sends. And so let me mm. ask you that, Richard. You've got an Azure website and you turn on App Insights. How many millions of metrics does it send? Do you know? No idea. Then what do you know? And how would you know? But you know, the how theory, you know? the way I set up App Insights is I set it in free mode, which gives mm-hmm. me five million data points in a month. And it and within that month I'm gonna find out pretty quickly whether I fit in the threshold or not. Right. You know, then I'll upgrade to the standard edition for what is it, twenty five dollars a month. And that takes me to 15 million data points. And then we'll find out if I can fit into that. And it's a, what, a buck 85 per million beyond the 15. Right. But you just had to do a lot of work to figure that out. Well, the, and the bigger thing for me is c- configuration in general. You know, mm-hmm. like it turns out instrument, instrumenting my app, not actually the job I want to spend time on. I'm trying to figure out why my app isn't performing as well as I thought, you know, those kinds of things. So I generally don't turn on instrumentation until I'm already in trouble. (laughs) Right. So anybody who's going to come at me and say, here, I'm going to, I'm going to discover all the bits you're using for you and instrument with the right set of metrics. Like I'm a performance tuning guy. I, you listed off the right perf bond numbers for me. Like what do I watch when I want to figure out if a website's healthy? CPU, amount of memory allocated to the .NET stack, request per second and request queued, right? The four right. four magic numbers that let me know how pissed off is this website. And right. that, that, that just gives you a sense of, is it in pain? Now, it doesn't actually tell you what the pain is at all. And, you know, But if you could give me a tool where when I drop it in, it's going to grab those things and then co- start correlating them with the other pieces. You know, that's the, the biggest problem in building out an instrumentation suite. It's not just the web server. It's how it's playing with the database. And right. How the network configuration is behaving. What's the load balancer actually doing? You know, often right. we think stuff's set up in ways that it isn't actually set up. Right. And and you know we look for we look for the sort of things that you know you as a developer are are going to look for. You know, we're trying to take you know years of kind of hive knowledge and automate that. Um, as best we can. A really good example that you just mentioned was the load balancer of, of one of the things that we do is we break down these metrics to be able to show you server by server. And and you're able to take a look and quickly determine is my problem across my entire my entire web farm or is it just a node in one of the farm? machines. And, yeah. Yeah. And and really help isolate that down. Well, we're, rule number one for me when I'm dealing with low balance site is tell me what you think the low balance is doing. Now let's go see if it's actually doing that. Because right, 75% right. of the time it's not. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And and that's been interesting ourselves. So um, at Stackify, everything we do is actually hosted in Azure Cloud Services. And uh, you know, we we scale up, we scale down. We've got a lot of instances out there running, and we use Stackify for Stackify. And being able to just click on that tab and see the breakdown of of how many requests are being routed to each instance. You, there's times where I've seen the Azure load balancer isn't doing exactly round robin, right? And we've you know we've been able to get a lot of insight, especially when you're when you're moving to a cloud, whether it's AWS or Azure or Heroku or wherever you want to run, um, you lose so much ability to kind of see what's going on at at that level of infrastructure and yeah. you just have to put complete 
you know, trust and faith in your provider. Um, so it's good to be able to have tools to, to actually to verify s- that spot check and verify that, you know, it, we are a very, very large consumer of Azure service bus. And right. it's been a, gr- it's been a great product. Um, but we haven't always seen the SLA that we're supposed to get. Ah, interesting. And, and by having tools on our end that, that are doing this instrumentation, we know what our SLA is, and we're able to hold our provider's feet to the fire a little bit as well. Well, you know, cramming my IT hat firmly on, this is the one of the biggest challenges you have with any service provider, whether they're public cloud or not. Yes. It's one thing to have a contract that says this is the performance you're going to get. How do you translate that into numbers you're actually getting? Right. And and I've I've dealt with a lot of providers over the years, whether it's, you know, our own, our Colo or, you know, someplace like Azure AWS, and they exactly what you said, they advertise an SLA, but it's still up to you to kind of make sure they're responsible for meeting that SLA. If they aren't, they don't usually make you very aware of that. They don't pick up the phone and call you and say, oh, by the way, we've we've missed your SLA for the last month. Here's a bucket of money back. That's just <laughs> not going to happen. Wait a minute. So that bucket of money that showed up at the door yesterday, I should give that back? That's- <laughs> Wait, you got a bucket of money? Oh, wait a minute. That <laughs> was, from the, that was from the Canadian government to pay my AT&T bill, actually. <laughs> so what if I want this all on-prem, Jason? So we don't have an on-prem option. Um, and part of that is due to the fact um, of how fast we're, we're moving. And part yeah. of it is due to the fact of how much infrastructure it really requires to run a product like Stackify. Now, I can instrument an on-prem app. But the instrumentation oh, will be going to the cloud. Absolutely. So okay. you can instrument on-prem. You can instrument Azure Cloud Services, AWS, anywhere where you can install our agent. Um, client side. So you're talking like client side JavaScript yeah, code. Not necessarily JavaScript code, but I'm talking like you know Windows Universal apps, WPF apps, that kind of thing. Um, in in theory, absolutely you can. We we haven't really had anybody doing a lot of that yet, but um, that's not. That's not a big focus for us. Um, there's some differences on how we would need to present that data and aggregate that all in, sure. in our side um, that we just haven't put a big focus on right now. It's mainly about server-side code. Yeah, it's a different kind of error collection. Useful, sure. but different. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Now, error collection and log aggregation, you absolutely could do that. Okay. And actually, yeah, I, it's very useful to have to know what errors are occurring on client machines before the client complains. Right. Absolutely. And... Um, yeah, because I should point out, um, you know, along with that question is, you don't have to install our agent to do error and log aggregation. That's merely incorporate the library into your code, and it's going to get to us. Right. You guys got to take care of the rest. Right. Priced accordingly. Like, this is not <laughs> right. part of the free product either. Uh, what, error and log aggregation? Yeah. Um, actually, our Azure Free product does have uh, a certain amount of of error and log data that you can send. I think it's like fifty gigabytes um, of error and log data that you can send us, which is a fairly decent amount. And that's so that's over a thirty day rolling window. Nice. And admittedly, your products are terribly expensive twenty bucks a month for collecting all the logs on everything per server. Yeah, it's a pretty good deal. It's been invaluable for Carbonite. Is it a bit expensive? That's the real question, Michael. Uh, no, honestly, it it really hasn't. Um, 
so we turned off the uh, server monitoring in our dev and test environments. Uh, we continue to use the logging and uh, error management in those environments. And then for staging and production, I mean, for the value that we get out of it, I want to say we're paying maybe a couple hundred bucks a month, which for um, a system as large as ours is really just, you know, pennies. You shave a few hours off of a debug, you paid for the whole month. It's ridiculous. Yeah, that's crazy. Oh, no kidding. And, you know, you just mentioned uh, figuring out uh, that a problem exists before a user does. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, we do that more or less routinely now. Uh, you know, the number of calls to our customer service has dropped, you know, oh, just overall the health of our system has been better because of the way that StackFi services all this, uh, information for us. I, I've been working with an organization whose goal for the tech support group was to make more calls to customers than they received. So that they, when, Love when it. a problem occurred, they could call the customer for the customer could call them to say, Hey, we noticed you had a problem. Yeah. And, you know, we're working uh, key, on it. Keyword being had a problem. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's like you've detected it. You're able to identify who it is. You're able to, you know, get an activity action together and then contact that customer and say, we're, we're making your life better. Even if, even if you weren't going to report it, we know and we're working on it. I call that kind of service creepy awesome. <laughs> you know, <laughs> creepy awesome. Yep. Thanks. I think, uh, <laughs> wow. We're watching you we're, and we're here to make your life better. <laughs> But it's, you know, I, I honestly like it when my credit card company calls me and says, Hey, are you in Chicago? Cause we just see some transactions here. You know, it's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. You're, you're paying attention. I, I, I think for us as service providers to be able to say, Hey, we notice you're struggling with this piece of the app. Like there's another level here beyond not just generating errors, but imagine being able to detect frustration that, that behavior inside of the app. They're sort of going back and forth. They're trying to figure out how to use something. Like you could see the signature of somebody struggling with a feature and to have your tech support people reach out and say, hey, I saw you struggling with this feature. Can I help you? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's funny. Uh, I actually got a fraud alert for someone trying to use my credit card number on Friday. Uh, and, you know, I'm kind of a nerd, so I'm always thinking about nerd type stuff. And I asked the lady if she used Stackify and she laughed at me. <laughs> <laughs> used what? what? Stacker, what? Stacker, who? Who's a? What did you call Spotify? Nice. <laughs> did they? Did they respond? Yeah, it's my favorite music service because we get that a lot. Stackify, Spotify, lovely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. I have a relative who who still, no matter how many times I tell this person no, it's not Spotify. She's like, can you give me some free music? I'm like, <laughs> I, I don't work at Spotify. And is <laughs> Spotify free music anyway? Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, uh, just with a few minutes we have left, Jason, at Dev Intersection, we were talking about some of the cool things that Carbonite was doing just in terms of pure geek appeal, like writing file systems and doing all sorts of low-level stuff. Michael, was that you that, that did all that? Or you you had to <laughs> jump through a lot of hoops to get um, a system like Carbonite so fast and efficient? Uh, no, um, we have uh, a team, uh, our server team, and I mean, these guys are, are just absolutely brilliant. And, you know, their entire goal in life is to, you know, uh, be able to compress files as, you know, as absolutely small as possible, given, you know, uh, the amount of data that we store. And so they handle all that, and it's uh, my job from uh, the application perspective to make sure that uh, customers are able to actually send their data. Yeah, pretty cool. You guys are some smart guys up there. You must be to be able to handle all that data. 
Yeah, I honestly, I don't know how they do it. I'm not really sure my brain could handle it if they tried to tell me. <laughs> Are there any other stories you guys have from your collaboration that, that our listeners might be interested in? Um, yeah, so let's see. Uh, I think, Jason, our most recent uh, adventure together was we had a performance issue um, in production, and only in production, as the case always seems to be. And um, Jason let us know about the APM Plus uh, product, the one that's in beta. And this was, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Jason, but I think this is before it was even in a public beta. And he shipped us over the bits. Uh, we turned it on. And within, I think, half an hour, uh, identified specifically what the cause was and put a hot fix out about two hours later. And, you know, without this, uh, you know, the performance issue was really causing a lot of headaches. So, you know, all told from start to finish, it's maybe like, six hours instead of, you know, a week and a half. Um, so that was the most recent one. Uh, we also had a memory leak and this was actually the very first, um, bug that we discovered, uh, that wasn't pre-existing after we installed Stackify, um, uh, pushed a build out to, um, our state, our staging environment. And we noticed that, or <coughs> Stackify told us that our server kept, uh, rebooting. And so I looked in there and, you know, uh, the notifications said that, you know, the memory is really high. So every time uh, I would, you know, try to log in and uh, take a memory dump so I could, you know, kind of figure out what's going on. And then Jason's like, oh, we'll just, you know, set up a notification for it. If it goes above, you know, 75%, let you know. And, you know, I did 15 minutes later, it let me know I was able to get the memory dump and had the problem fixed in about an hour. Um, you know, and again, these are just things that wow. would have just taken much, much longer to figure out. And it's really just, you know, uh, time after time after time, um, you know, figuring out these types of issues. My team is relatively big and, you know, we've got a lot of, uh, hands moving in, you know, a, a lot of code churn and, you know, being able to have kind of this, uh, high level view of system health all the way down into, you know, the nitty gritty details just, I think makes everyone just breathe a lot easier because we don't feel like the application is healthy. We actually know that it's healthy. Nice. Yeah. Well, I could see that event driven mechanism be really useful for letting yourself know when you're coming up to the edges of your SLAs. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Um, it's been, uh, pretty incredible. In fact, uh, one of the other things that we identified was given the amount of load that we were putting on, um, one of our cloud services, uh, we have, um, was it five, uh, web roles in there and two of the web roles were just really getting pounded. So, you know, we were able to identify, uh, you know, the number of requests and, you know, all the resources that were uh, being taken up. So we were able to scale up, uh, you know, piece by piece until we were comfortable with, uh, the resource levels that we were seeing, you know, able to do that kind of independently instead of just kind of blindly, you know, throwing a bunch of new servers up there, we were able to do it in an intelligent way that, you know, ultimately probably saved us a lot of money. So you knew what services to add more of? Yes, we knew very specifically uh, which services. And uh, given that, you know, they track all the requests and all that kind of stuff, we were able to figure out uh, why um, certain services were, you know, kind of being hammered, uh, you know, uh, resolve that a little bit. And, Oh, you mentioned before, uh, a little earlier about the load balancer. Yeah. We actually ran into that exact, uh, same issue maybe four months ago. Um, and sure enough, uh, I was watching the, uh, the streaming logs, which I have to say is just my absolute favorite part of, uh, Stackify product. 
and I'm looking at one particular service where we had uh, four instances, and only two instances were getting any you know significant portion uh, of the traffic, and the other two were doing more or less nothing. Wow. Um, you know, so we were able to fix that. Uh, you know, just really, really easily. Wow. Yeah, actually seeing utilization of equipment and watching uh, they, this is supposed to be round robin. Let's see if it's round robining or, you know, we we're talking about one o- overloaded machine. I had a low balancer was actually running by IP. And then sure enough, you get a mega proxy, right? Some provider that everybody yep. comes to the same IP address mm. and a hundred customers from that. And that server's just pinned to the wall. Yeah, yeah. those jerks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, you're, well, your load balancing strategy is incorrect. Right? You need to come up with a better one. All right, guys, this has been a great show. I got to run because AT and T is on the other line, and they're they're pissed. So, uh, good luck with your bill. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> thanks very much for talking to us. It's been great. All right, really thanks, appreciate guys. it, guys. Thanks very much. You're Love welcome. Love being on the show. You bet. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a